Welcome to JR Art Loud, the podcast of Jewish Renaissance. My name is Judy Herman, and today it's really exciting of me to welcome Rebecca Teichman, or Teichman to this podcast because I saw this astonishingly beautiful play, Indecent, and I can't get it out of my head. And Rebecca, you're so part of the journey of the play. I, I know directors are vitally important, but you're woven into its fabric, aren't you? With Paula Vogel, you and she go back a long way, don't you? First of all, just thank you, Judy, for having me, and thank you for your incredibly kind words about Indecent. It's very appreciated. Yeah, I think the story of how this play came to be is a very unique story. It was... Uh, when I was a graduate student, which is now what, a couple decades ago, um, I happened upon the play, God of Vengeance, on which Indecent is based, and uh, was looking for a one hour long project to do in my first year as a director. And was amazed that I'd never read the play before. I was deeply moved by the play and very surprised then to learn about what happened to it when it arrived in New York in the 20s that everyone in it was arrested for obscenity the, the moment it opened on Broadway. So I was a graduate student at Yale and I was working with a dramaturg named Rebecca Rugg and we um, called the Yale Law Library and said, do you happen to have access to the obscenity trial of this play, God of Vengeance in 1923? And they were like, sure, come on down. We'll you could take it. <laughs> so, you know, a couple hours later, we had this many thousand page uh, document that was just beyond belief, fascinating. Um, and then it turned out that also housed at the Yale libraries was were Sholem Asha's papers, Sholem Asha who wrote The God of Vengeance. And also at Yale was Harry Weinberger, papers. So Harry Weinberger makes a very brief appearance in Indecent, but he was both the producer on Broadway and the uh, lawyer who defended the play in court. So all his papers were there. So I ended up spending my three years as a graduate student sort of follow, falling into this incredible rabbit hole, you know, of um, this moment around this play in the 20s in New York. And I became thoroughly and completely obsessed. I tried to make a piece about it then. It was called The People versus the God of Vengeance. Yeah, I read about that. I want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a testament to how important the story was, but also that I wasn't, I'm not a playwright and I couldn't contain the complexities of the story with, I was trying to use only found materials and it just didn't quite work. So I, but I did feel at the end of those three years that I, I had sort of inherited a responsibility or a allegiance to this story that I had to sort of caretake it as best I could. I mean, I'd sat for years with the original papers, you know, I, I could feel these people. Um, so I, I was determined to try to find a way to tell the story. And it took about a decade to reach out to Paula Vogel and ask her if she'd consider taking this idea 
and you know creating a play based on it and she it it was sort of like two trekkies finding each other she was equally obsessed with the god of vengeance sorry she hadn't written the play before you reached out to her and no you put the idea in her head is that what you're saying What's i mean the, yes in a way it, i think i i wrote probably brought the idea up you know an idea that was nascent in her but i i called her and you know said would you be at all interested in collaborating on a piece wow. about play got a vengeance and and she was said you know before i'd even gotten the full sentence out of my mouth she said yes <laughs> that's so beautiful <laughs> it was really extraordinary i mean we both i think i don't know maybe 20 years apart maybe 15 read got a vengeance in the stacks of different libraries and had our breaths taken away. So I just happened to come to her with exactly the right thing. And then it was an extremely intimate, beautiful process of sort of dreaming this out together. Um, she very quickly in that first phone call said to me, in my mind, it's not just about New York in the twenties. It extends far beyond that. Is that okay? And I said, yes. <laughs> I just had no idea how to do that. And really, Paula's the only person that would have ever come up with what indecent is today. That is part of why there are many gifts to my family and woven into the piece because the process was so intimate and she, um, she really downloaded deeply what my experience had been and why my obsession with the play was so intense. So, yeah, so shall we, two things I think we need to do. One is we need, obviously we need to talk about the outline of why a God of Vengeance is mm -hmm. at the same time so gripping and so controversial. And some of the yeah. ideas that the pair of you come up with because it speaks for today possibly almost more than when you started working on it yes definitely today, definitely maybe it's just always speaks for the time it's in because of the terms so we need to talk about that and i would just like before we do that maybe we could just talk a little bit about your background first so because you, you went to uni in montreal is that right you started yeah university. well done you're not canadian though are you i'm canadian and american and both all right i was completely confused so so <laughs> were you where were you brought up then which I was born in in the States, but to Canadian parents. Oh, wow. So at that time, you got dual citizenship, which was a huge gift. Wonderful. So, yeah. So I went and um, studied at McGill University in Montreal, had the best time there. It was an incredible opportunity, you know, to go to Canada and to that very international city. I was, I just loved it. Um, I studied a lot of different things. I was an actor then. I was trying to act, learning about acting, and but poli sci and languages and history. Mm. It was a great place for me, a really great place. I loved it. Yeah, well, I've been to Montreal and I absolutely adore it, so I'm with you there. It's yeah. One of the cities I want to get back to. You know, sometimes you think, oh, I've done that. Don't feel that about about Montreal, but to study there, that must be something else, yes. So um, where were you actually brought up then? I was brought up mostly in Long Island, um, a small town called Port Jefferson, where um, I mostly just didn't fit in. <laughs> oh, right. 
So that's interesting you say small town because that's something America at the moment seems to be very divided. I think maybe it always was between small town America and east and west coast so-called sophisticated America. That sounds as if I'm favouring one rather than the other. Maybe I am. But that's there in the play, isn't it? The idea of what is or isn't un-American as well as everything else that's in the play. I mean, if you're Jewish, you're more likely to fit into the sophisticated side of it, aren't you? Well, at the time, if, if, if we look at the moment that God of Vengeance opened in the 20s in New York, so in, um, on, that it, where after a huge successful run, really all over Europe, and then to the Yiddish theater downtown in New York, and it played for a long time in Yiddish, in New York before it made this transfer. It was a time of tremendous and rising anti-Semitism, of um, really profound fear and hatred towards immigrants, um, with a you know a lot of that focused on Eastern European Jews that were sort of flooding in um, right around the time that God of Vengeance opens. There are huge immigration laws. Uh, put into place to restrict the flow of Eastern European immigration. Um, so it's the Jewish community is very divided by kind of recent, more recent Eastern European arrivals and the kind of German Jews who had worked very hard to assimilate into American culture. And I think the great fear was one of many was that God of Vengeance was just the wrong thing at the wrong time. So by that German Jewish community sort of airing our dirty laundry, like why on the Great White Way would you put a play about prostitutes, um, lesbians, you know, that questions the wrathful nature of God, that questions the piety of a really very sinister rabbi um, that they many in the Jewish community and in particular um, the the complaint was registered by the rabbi of this German Jewish very upscale synagogue Temple Emmanuel which still exists oh, um, I, I know about it yes yeah they, you know, and I, I have a tremendous amount of compassion for this. I feel like if you can really wrap your mind around what it must have been like then, I can see why it was upsetting or difficult, you know, to have of all the plays representing parts of Jewish culture, that this is the one. Um, so it was really within the Jewish community itself that the cry rose to shut the play down. Mm. Um, I don't know if I exactly answered your question, but that idea of sort of what's, I, th I think you're so right that it becomes more and more and more and more relevant and decent does. And this sort of wave of anti-immigrant sentiment that's just, that's just everywhere now um, and growing and feels extremely dangerous to me. You know, this was, this moment also in the 20s in New York, it echoes that. So much of the play Indecent and God of Vengeance are about, are about the survival of love in a time of hatred. 
And that feels like the battle we're in now. Yeah, it certainly does. What I was going to say was, was pretty well exactly that. But um, before that, do you think it, it seems that the catalyst is the translation into English? Because that means it's out there. Whereas if it's in Yiddish, it's only for the Jews. And That's right. It, it, it's niche. And they can share it and they can say what they like. And so it's in a safe space. So is that is that correct? That the, the terror of it all and why there's this very famous, beautiful love scene between two women in the rain was actually cut out of the English translation before it got to the stage. So is that that's what that's another. It's just exactly the wrong time to go public in the world. Right. Know. I mean, it's it's definitely the act of moving it into a space where non-Jews would def would see it. They would, you know, uh, when it's downtown, really there's there's a little bit of noise, but not much. Yeah, it's yeah. it's clearly by the Jews for the Jews. Yeah. Um, and it becomes a totally different thing when you put it into mainstream American culture. And it, you know, becomes a lightning rod then in a many, many different ways. And if you think about really at risk, um, vulnerable groups like, um, you know, how what representation is like of of Islam, for example, you know, you can you can understand how if one play is going to rise and make it onto Broadway, you can see how, you know, people within that community to put something that's extremely critical of of the of the religion was felt very dangerous like pouring gasoline on a fire and it wasn't just the lesbian love it's many other things in the play that i think ignited you know made it feel genuinely dangerous and that they wanted to have it gone all right would you tell me some of those but i i was going to quote a bit of the play there's a marvelous um worrying speech where Lemel is championing the play i can't remember who actually says this but um a passionate speech about you know okay this is the intelligentsia versus the uptown smith family who bring their son along and have to walk out and are really embarrassed by the whole thing and that i mean it, the play is absolutely brilliant at bringing it down to a sort of human situation i think mm -hmm. that's that's esther you know in a company meeting where they're announcing that they're moving to broadway but also that they've made really significant cuts in the love scene and it's you know a, a really fascinating painful scene about making hideous compromise that then also doesn't work yeah that, and so there are lots of sort of points where the play is very good at telling the story without being obvious if you see what i mean and that's one of them i think you know you and I'm, i don't know if it's right i suppose i should say paula but she she does know in whose mouth to put each speech, doesn't she, if you see what I mean? Those sorts of speeches where you're telling information like that. I mean, it's really the the incredible genius of Paula that that creates the whole structure and the moment to moment truth of the play, really. Yeah, and that that's one of them. And just before that, there's you know, we were talking about the resonance for today. 
one of the biggest dangers today for me, I, I think, is social media. I've, I've really got to think about it. And the fact, you know, that people can get trolled so easily and, and it's incredibly dangerous. But there's this, there's this thing saying, um, you pollute our stage, okay, you dirty kikes, right? Now, that's the sort of thing I expect is being received all over the place, similar sort of um, hor horrible trolling messages, texts and so forth now. Obviously, that's one... I think it, it, it's in writing, but it sell, and it sells tickets, doesn't it? So it's that it's a rather horrible idea that people might read that and think, oh, I'll go, because it sounds sensational. But that's exactly... That's one of the things I picked out as being, you know, what I'm talking about, this business where you could actually feel it being even worse today, really, if that's possible, I suppose. Oh, yeah. Mm. That's funny that that quote is from the same scene where the producer <laughs> is trying to help the company understand why they made those cuts that, you know, every day we sell out the theater and every day I receive another stack of hate mail. So it wasn't totally under the radar when it was in Yiddish, you know, there were threats, mm. but it would have, I'm sure, stayed very quiet. It wouldn't have exploded in the way that it did had they not moved. I And I could sort of feel the fear you know, of that dilemma and, and why the yeah. cops were there. Um, I mentioned the character Lemel, who is at the centre of the play. Well, for me, he is anyway, uh, because he's sort of our guide through it. But he's a sort of most incredibly faithful human being and uh, the warmest, most wonderful person. He's there for everybody, yeah. including the audience. Um, yeah. Everybody else is brilliant. But there's this extraordinary, it's just a very interesting structure, this idea of you've got three pairs, male and female, mm -hmm. the youngest ones, the middle, yeah. as you call them, who are the more experienced ones, and the elders, who are the extremely experienced ones, and they're the wise ones. And so the sort of the, the, the middle ones are more likely to be sensational, you know, sort of, uh, how can I put it? Well, really, if you look at the opening of the play, I think uh, Lem, uh, Lemel puts it very well, doesn't he? He mm -hmm. gets it straight away. That, who thought of that amazing structure? And obviously, Paul, I mean, were you in on that? Was that Paula again? This idea that you'd have, you know, the ingenue, the middle and the elder, and everybody would fit into that except Lemel, because they do. It must have been Paula. I, you know, it's all, it's all such a, it's a haze now, exactly, you know, but, but it must have been her, the sort of big vision for the structure was very much Paula's. I'm trying to think if we ever did a workshop with any other kind of casting, but I don't think so. So I think it must have always been the way it was. We knew, we knew from the begin from the first conversation that where Paula was formulating the ideas that it was going to be a small group, a troop of actors, a small troop of actors playing many, many parts. So I would assume it was it was an, an instinct of Paula's. But it works, doesn't it? Because it gives us a roadmap immediately, and it gives we everybody in the play could play lots of different parts with lots of nuances, but it guides us through it, doesn't it? Yeah, and it also sets up, I think, a thematic sort of thread that went that weaves all the way through the piece of sort of going from innocence and a kind of youthful courage audacity you know to knowledge there are many ways this plays out but the sort of life cycle you know the young writer who is just wants to blow everything up you know he's like writing a very incendiary play he has 
no fear. He sort of, you know, wants to throw that into the middle of Paris's salon where it was likely to really implode. Um, and then, you know, forward to that same man at the end of, towards the end of his life, who did in fact forbid the production of this play, having, you know, lived through the forties. So it's the conception is so brilliant because so much of the piece is really about that moving from youth to old age um, and how experience and time accumulates, you know, on the body and in the soul. Yeah, all the way through it, I had ringing in my ears that the true story of a little Jewish play. Mm -hmm. That's such a brilliant thing to start with, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to ask you, actually, can we just chart what God of Vengeance is about? You know, mm -hmm. very brief plot outline. Yeah. I haven't seen so, this decent yet, and you've all got to go. Yes, yes, no, of course, right. Um, so The God of Vengeance by Sholomash, which is the play at the heart of our play, Indecent, um, tells the story of a brothel owner who runs a brothel in his basement. And he is raising, he and his wife are raising a young girl, and they're you know, desperately trying to keep her pious sort of against all odds so they won't allow her into the basement. They are having a Torah scroll inscribed for her. They actually buy the scroll and put it in her bedroom. Um, and they're trying to arrange a marriage for her with a young Jewish scholar. And of course, this, this young girl finds her way into the basement and she meets one of the women prostitutes and they sorry i'll say that again she meets one of the women prostitutes and they have the one of the most as you said one of the most beautiful love scenes i've ever read um and i mean i don't know if i should tell you the end of the play but that's based basically the the setup yeah. for the whole thing it's quite a wild structure you know and and wild idea of trying you know being a pimp basically trying to living above your a brothel and trying to keep your daughter pure in that house um and innocent of what's going on below yeah it's interesting because because i have because i haven't read or seen it and i really feel i should uh, oh yeah, uh, definitely. yeah it, it, you know from what we see, I would, it's very hard to be sorry for the father. He's at, he's brutal with the daughter, and I think we can give away the end. He flings her down the stairs, and for some people, what some of the audience, I guess, flinging a tourist scroll after her would be even worse or just as bad. But I mean, it might be, mightn't it? You can't really tell. It's not what you do with tourist scrolls, anyway. No. Um, you know that. So that that's an impiety from the Jewish point of view, as not anybody else's. So there's so many things going on there. And and yet, and yet, so that's the point, isn't it? The and yet. I mean, the play itself really centers on him and he does have sort of a kinglier, you know, uh, he wants something so bad for his child that he never attained for himself. And he is trying every which way he can to create those opportunities for her and uh, it has a kind of 
pathetic desperation. You know, he's a wealthy man, but with no moral standing. Mm. Um, and he's trying to buy religion and buy status in a world that really values religion. So the fact that first of all, a rabbi would sell it, would sell a Torah scroll, would let it even be housed, you know, in um, somebody's home above a brothel. All of it is very um, damning of the religious figures in the play. His longing to find purity, you know, in a, in a deeply violent world, you are invited to have some compassion for, in, I think, in the play. Um, and then he, in the end of it, he, you know, he implodes, he sort of totally loses the battle and he is, he is a person who's steeped in violence and that's how he responds, it's ugly. He doesn't, you know, the way the play is written, he is grabbing the Torah and says, take it with you, but he never actually throws it down. Oh, right, okay. Hmm. It's just it's going to land up in the basement one way or the other. Thank you. I think that's very helpful because that's in a way you don't get a moment where you he looks like a sympathetic mm. character. I don't think during, during indecent, um, right? Which makes me ask: Have you ever thought of trying to stage the two in parallel? Yeah, Paula and I talked about it a lot about doing doing a version of God of Vengeance sort of adapting it to the number of people we have in Indecent and then doing it somehow in conjunction. That's a fantasy we've always had. Oh, we've not, we haven't done it yet, but I would love to do it. I hope you do. I mean, you're probably going to do it in Montreal during a time when I can't get there or something, but I just I just felt how wonderful that would be to see both. Yeah, yeah. really interesting. Absolutely with the same cast, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, really, really would. So, um, right. So let's let's talk some more about this play. Was there always going? I mean, it champions Yiddish wonderfully. Um, yeah, there's a lot of Yiddish in it, and usually, with any luck, you get translation afterwards. But uh, um, and it's just lovely to hear it. So and and sometimes sung as well. Beautiful. So um, was that always there? Was that for Paula? Was that always there? The idea that some of it would be in Yiddish. Yeah, and that at one level, the play is about the loss of a language and making the audience feel that they, so you, we, every, every title throughout the play is in both English and Yiddish, so no, you get to know what the language looks like, and then you hear this one scene the rain scene over and over and over and over and over again, so that you start to kind of, you basically know it. So then when you hear it in Yiddish at the end of the play, hopefully you feel you understand Yiddish, you know, and you're invited in some way to fall in love with that language, the beauty and the music of the language and to mourn what of it was lost. We do try to create there's a mo a visual moment in the piece that I think of as a kind of as a kind of Kaddish, not to say that Yiddish is dead, it's not. But there, but but you know, what Yiddish might have been were it not for the Holocaust would be a very different thing than what it is now. Mm -hmm. So it's very moving to me to acknowledge that, you know, in a room 
publicly sort of a moment of saying like this is the scale of this is so epic that an entire language is put it was put at risk yeah yeah uh, just just say um you mentioned kaddish which is the prayer for the dead for anyone listening yeah. who doesn't know which actually takes me i'm not going to say neatly because it's not the right thing but, but rather beautifully into the fact that the lot i think we actually do see a performance in the large ghetto in in poland um which is incredibly moving because we've seen it in this New York setting. We've seen it. In fact, we've seen it read round a table in um, yeah. in the same country. That was in Poland, wasn't it? I think. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. There's a sort of um, frightening circular journey there. But yeah, first reading, um, which we see in 1907, I think, round a table. Yes. yes. Um, with, and all the sort of various problems that these people who might back it come up with, of course, because right. exactly from what all the things we've been saying, to it being almost like a beautiful ray of hope that people will do it for each other in the ghetto. And they're mm -hmm. saying, if you like our play, you know, or even if you don't, throw bread. You know, it's, right. it's an incredible moment, and you know, we we know that that those that that cast will land up in the camps. We know that. Yeah, we see it. We see uh, a line yeah. of them going yeah. sadly, possibly to their death. So that's there. That hangs over the play as well. I mean, you know, it can't it can't help but do that, can it? So it's, it's very important that you know this whole journey. You know, you're talking about the death of Yiddish. That's that's unfortunately a massive part of that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Although in the play, I don't know if this is giving too much away two women at the heart of God of vengeance escape. You know, they, I love this idea, this in indecent that, you know, those women and their love for each other can never be killed because it exists in perpetuity. It's written, it just, it exists. Mm. I sort of like to think somehow in my, in my mind that if you could like cut through time, they're just perpetually dancing in the rain, those two. And they are this, you know, like symbol of, the possibility of love that won't die, that refuses to die. And they do so indecent sort of works to wants to end with hope um, and with the belief that there is, there remains possibility. You know, there remains, it doesn't, it refuses to end at the Holocaust. Yes, well, I, somehow I didn't expect it to either. I think that's sort of there. You, know, you expect to cut to something different, but you, you don't know what when you're watching it. Right. It doesn't feel like the end, which is, I think, a good right. thing how you've managed yeah. it, but you have. Because I'm not that's saying that was benefit of hindsight. I did not feel yeah. we were at the end. I knew there was more to come. So, and it would have been so easy to end it there. And no, it would have yeah. been so wrong yeah no that that was the, the beauty of it I, I mean the night I was there you got a standing ovation I hope you're getting one every night because you certainly should yeah so um yeah so I think I think what what is it what that was I mean we just I'm dancing about a bit here but going back to that first reading that is actually there's a lot of comedy in the play I don't know if we've actually mm -hmm. said that but to hear 
these upright businessmen um, <laughs> in Poland, and then many of them middle-aged. Right, well, no, look, oh, you read this prostitute, and you read this young girl, and you, what? <laughs> and then, of course, they do, but so there's so many layers there. I mean, it's absolutely yeah. And it was true. It's based on, you know, Peretz, who was really a, a huge mentor, Yiddish writer, Yiddish poet, Yiddish writer to these. So he would gather a salon of Yiddish writers and they would read their work out loud. And on the day that Ash came and young, very young man brings this play, they read it out loud. And at the end of it, Peretz really did say to him, burn it. Yes, I, I gathered that. That's just brilliant. I mean, it's again, it's brilliant the way Paula, and I'm not going to say you as well, but the way you managed to weave in the real facts and yeah. work around them to create, you know, the scenes. Well, obviously, that's the job of the playwright, I guess, but even so, I mean, it's beautifully done. How did you conceive the idea of a blink in time? I mean, this is our guide through the play, yeah. but on those wonderful backdrops, you'll get this word, this phrase, a blink in time, and it means we're going somewhere else now. And that works because it does cut quite quickly from one place to another, but always going forward, I think. So um, again, was that something that one of these brilliant things that Paula came up with? Yes, totally, 100%. And I love how these blinks, they can go from, you know, one minute to three minutes later, and then sometimes they jump us ahead 10 years. Yeah. And there is something about the experience of living in that idea. You know, the way time moves, the way trauma sort of affects your perception of time and the motion of time. So yeah, it's a really, really th very, I think, theatrical idea because the, the play has to sort of leap through time and how to do it so that also that phrase and that idea keeps accumulating meaning, layers and layers of meaning. Yeah, yes, no, that really works. Were there always going to be that sort of the words on yeah. the backdrop? Was that always going yeah. to be, again, the other guide, so you know where you are and when, and that it's in both languages, and then it's for the designer to realise it. Actually, can we name the designer? So there were many incredible designers the projection designer is named Talia Arden, who uh, does a beautiful job. And the set designer is Ricardo Hernandez. Costumes, Emily Rebeltz. Lights, Christopher Ackerland. And choreographer was, was David Dorfman with the incredible Sarah Gibbons. So it's a huge, it's a huge team of people that, you know, take the ideas and then figure out how to manifest them, how to bring them yeah, so what did, you know, so did they just get a script um, saying, right, we're going to have this thing, and they came up with all that, I suppose you do with Shakespeare, don't you? But even so, that, again, I'm, I should have said design team, but actually I mean creative team, don't I? Because that, that, that the design team, the creative team, have really come up with something that, again, guides you through, but it's seamless and it's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, you know, you get lucky if you're very, very lucky, get to work with people like these who take an idea and expand it and, you know, bring it alive in ways that you alone couldn't conceive of. 
I think maybe one interesting thing about projection in the play is that it's an investment to have projection in any production. It becomes a huge production cost, really. And, and yet this play, I mean, I always, I felt very strongly and it still feels dead right that you never want to have any sense that there's sort of like the technology of projection or moving images you know, those, so in a funny way for somebody like Tal, who, I mean, if you saw the artwork he can make, you know, he's an extraordinary artist. It was sort of all about staying within very strict limits and how to create meaning and truth and beauty within those extreme limits. Like, you know, how do you take this idea of a disappearing language? and just put that into an image that also wants to feel homemade. You know, these things, they all evolve out of tons of dialogue and trying. It's a huge collaborative enterprise. I guess that's what's maybe been the hardest thing about this. Well, there's so many things that have been so hard about the lockdown, but that so many of us who work in theater are deeply collaborative people who sort of don't, you know, don't run solo. Um, so ideas feel, you know, they're part of a, a huge process that involves many hearts and many minds. Yeah, and that's just something to do with the journey of the play. I wanted to ask you, has it changed since you originally staged it way before the lockdown in America? In 2017, was it? What's, when was the first production? Maybe 15. 15, as early as that. Right? was the first production I was at Yale. Hmm. Um, significantly actually given that it's sort of the idea all you know those libraries are all there and everything um, and then it went to La Jolla then to the vineyard so it had many stops uh, it was very it was in some ways you might have seen it and said it's exactly the same in some ways you'd think it was very very different I think the biggest difference was the ending we hadn't figured out the ending yet and we we're still working out exactly which songs. So yeah. I think in that first production, there were some songs that aren't there anymore. And like what you just said is such music to my ears when you said it feels, you can feel that you are gonna go somewhere after the scene that takes place in the forties. You can feel you're going to move, you need to go somewhere else when we first opened it it didn't it felt like it should end you know at the holocaust and we just both wouldn't even run it that way we wouldn't play it once that way it, it was not. essential not to end it there but we hadn't figured out yet how to make it feel like it couldn't end there yeah no but well you sure have now we're not going to say so exactly. <laughs> So, not exactly, not exactly, exactly. So, um, yeah, and we, you mentioned, we've mentioned music several times. I mean, music is at the heart of the play too. Yes, and the dance and the music are just stunning. So Lisa Gutkin, who is a composer who plays with the Klezmatics, and Aaron Halva, another really wonderful composer and accordionist, they were in the original production and they wrote the music. Oh, right. Okay. So they right. were with us every day in rehearsal and they really wrote the music to what we were making, mm -hmm. um, which was incredible, uh, you know, to be able to work that way. So they were really 
deeply responding to the moment to moment discoveries we were making. Gosh, how sounds like you had a long rehearsal process then. It does sound that way, but the first rehearsal period was just totally a normal rehearsal period and it was complete chaos. We entered with a few musical themes, but no full score. A few musical themes and songs. We knew the songs. The songs are not written by them, but the, but the through score is. So it was, they were doing the job of 10 people, you know, being in rehearsal, writing the music, um, getting parts arranged. It was, it was wild to do it as quickly as we did the first time. Yeah. And then, okay, we know it's been an enormous triumph. It's Tony Award winning and you are certainly Tony Award winning, aren't you? I mean, that, that's quite an accolade, isn't it? So, um, yeah, it was yeah. an honor. But then, you know, as you say, the lockdown, and then the, I think the saddest thing was that you managed to do a few previews in London in 2020, and then literally just before, just before press night, wasn't it? Just like a week before press. Yeah. Um, it was really um, quite something. I mean, you know, for everybody, mm. the miracle is we got to come back. Yes. I kept logging onto the uh, many years website and say, I wonder when it will come back. Really thanks to that theaters, you know, I mean, they just were determined. David Bobani, who runs the Menier, was just committed to this play with everything in him. Yeah, that is very David, I think. You know, that theater has been there through thick and thin. And yes. Take more than a pandemic to to break break his spirit, I can say. So here you are, you're back again. It's an ideal space, but you must have played in different ones, but it's a wonderful space for it, for that intimacy with the audience and yet having room to, to breathe. The play to it's an incredible room to do the piece in incredible i love the feeling that you're first of all you're right just completely with them um and it has this sort of feel of an old attic a little bit in a beautiful mm -hmm. magical way um you know a small treasure box of a, of a theater so we've done it really like we've done it in this is the smallest, I think, space, but we had done it in a small space in New York, too, and huge spaces. So it's been amazing to get to see the same piece and the same production, you know, done to such different scales and feel how it it just it just works in either context. Mm. Like doing it at the Court Theatre on Broadway, it had this mythic scale, the sort of mythic scale of it was really brought forward, um, that hurtling through time, you know, the mythic questions that are at the core, the poetry of it. And at the Menier, that's also true, but it, but it really emphasizes, I think, the human scale, you know, and you're really inside the hearts of each of these people. So it's been a huge gift to get to, I mean, I just love the piece so much. So, you know, I keep learning about it every time I see it in a slightly, you know, from a different angle. Um, but this home has been a, a very special one, is still. <laughs> yes, I mean, goodness me, you've got a few months to go at last. Yeah, thank God. He's God, not the God of vengeance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it has hit so many, we've already talked about contemporary resonance to some extent, but um, in so many ways with the Afghan crisis happening. Yeah across the world and you know, we, we, I, we keep saying you know 
the refugee thing, the trolling sort of thing, the deep divisions in American society, and the anti-Semitism. You know, it's it's all there in the play, and so it's just yeah. cannot help but hit home. I'm afraid. Of all the things we wished for indecent to be, it was never that it would become more and more and more relevant over time. That was not the wish. And it really does. It just keeps gaining and it just comes closer and closer. And sometimes I think it's sort of these, it's like these cycles of history that we're heaving through, you know, with this, and we're just heaving through, we're getting closer sort of to what the play is moving through. It's very sort of startling as, you know, because Indecent also looks at this swath of history through the life of one play um, very much. I mean, it's kind of an amazing way to look at, to look at a huge passage of time, how one artwork moves, you know, and is perceived. And in a way, Indecent is doing a similar thing. You know, it's this one piece of art that is kind of becoming as it, the more we do it and the longer we do it is eerily prescient. Yes, completely. Just one very last question. Yes. You actually, it's a brilliant title, but how did you come by that indecent? It, it was because, so in the indictment in New York, it was charged with being, it was like a very long list, indecent, immoral, obscene, you know, went on and on and on. And it, there was a moment where we were debating a very long title that had all of those in it. We pulled out indecent. Well, I think you pulled out the right word. I think it's absolutely brilliant. I just love the title. It just takes you straight yeah. into it. And um, dare I ask what's next for you? <sighs> for me, I mean, there are many plans. I sort of, you know, everything feels very, very fragile. So I just hope they all come to fruition. Um, I guess the most immediate projects are uh, a musical that uh, I was working on before the pandemic that is with new music by Elvis Costello. Wow. Written a book, yeah, a book written by Sarah Rule based on a film, Face in the Crowd, which is an Ilya Kazan, Bud Schilberg film made in the 50s. It's a pretty amazing piece of theater. And also, an adaptation of a film called Sing Street. That's another project I can't wait to get back in to the room with. Um, that was a John Carney film that was, I was in tech, you know, it all kind of everything shut, got paralyzed by COVID around that show and will come back to life. Yes, well, back to life is probably a good place to end. So that's nice. Um, and you've given me a lot of time, so I do appreciate it enormously. Oh, thank you. You've given me a lot of time. I've enjoyed it enormously too. And uh, so now, now I want to thank you so much, Rebecca Tashman. Yes, good. Oh, you're, anyone could see, I just got the thumbs up. <laughs> for, for, for your time today, it's been absolutely fascinating and really interesting. Thank and you I, so much, Judy. And I wish you every success and joy with all your projects. And to keep bringing them to London, if you can. Yes, I'd be so lucky. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much.